I know that as your pastor, sometimes I frustrate you. Don't deny it. It's okay. I already know. You do things, have quirks maybe, or even have sinned against you. As your pastor, I also want you to know that sometimes you frustrate me. As your pastor, I know that sometimes you frustrate each other. You might be in the midst of a disagreement, a disgruntlement, or some frustration or disappointment with someone in this room right now. But hear this today. All those who are in Christ are not enemies. We might at times be tempted to think of each other as enemies. Many times even submit ourselves to spirits of enmity toward one another. But if we're in Christ, we're not enemies. We share a righteousness together. We might have differences about the Holy Spirit and what it does or doesn't do. We might have differences about the end times, which I can't imagine since I preach Revelation, we should all be on the same page. Differences about the way the Old Testament fits with the New Testament. Differences about politics and Christian nationalism. Raise your hand if you've heard the phrase Christian nationalism in the past two months. Okay, that's really helpful to know actually. I was in a conversation this week with Cal, uh, who's home with a fever this morning, uh, talking with him this week about Christian nationalism, and we did not agree about everything. And we still love each other. In fact, he was helpful to me. And I'm pretty sure that I was really, really helpful to him. I'm sure. Differences, even some passionate differences, but we're not enemies. At times, we might even go beyond amoral differences in the church and actually sin against each other. Actually sin against God and each other. But if we are in Christ, we're not enemies. Satan loves it when humble, biblically permissible differences become hostile, unbiblical division. I'll say that again. Satan loves it when humble, biblically permissible differences becomes hostile, unbiblical division. But here is the great division in the world. The great separation of all people is not between cowboys and other teams, as close as that may be to holiness. It's not between who you vote for and who you do not vote for. It is not those between those who are smart and those who are dumb. It's not between those who are poor and those who are rich. It's not who those, those who are from Texas or from somewhere else, those who are from Russia or those who are from Ukraine. The great division in the world of all peoples is whether or not they are in, by faith, Jesus Christ. That is the great division of all peoples. Are you or are you not united in faith in Jesus 
Christ, all people, their eternity, their status with God, rises and falls as it falls to one side or the other of Jesus and His righteousness. With this in mind today, we'll see Job refer to those who oppose His righteousness as His enemy. And he wishes on them what they in God's judgment deserve. In Job's last defense, before he shuts his mouth in defense of his righteousness, he explains where wisdom can be found when Christ's righteousness is under attack. When your righteousness is under attack. When Job's friends have become his enemies. How does Job think about his enemies? What does he do? How does he live? How does he relate to them? And what about us? Look back one chapter into chapter 27. Look at Job 27, verse 7 through 12. Job and his friends have been going through these cycles of debate about Job's righteousness, trying to prove that either Job or God or the friends were wrong. I think it was about saying God's not going to be proved wrong. But that is the rhetoric. And in this very last statement, these closing arguments for Job, he refers to his friends who continue to call him a sinner, deserving of the suffering, he calls them his enemy. Look in Job 27 verse 7. Let my enemy be as the wicked... And let him who rises up against me be as the unrighteous. For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? When God takes away his life, will God hear his cry? When distress comes upon him, will he take delight in the Almighty? Will he call upon God at all times? I will teach you, friends, concerning the hand of God. What is the Almighty? I will not conceal. Behold, all of you have seen it yourselves. Why then have you become altogether vain? What's Job getting at in this section and through the rest of the chapter? He's referring to those who are opposed to his righteousness as enemies. His friends have become his enemies because they attack and they oppose his righteousness, that he was right and blameless before God. His friends came as comforters, but by opposing his righteousness, they were increasingly critical they came humbly, but they became hostile. Toward, toward what? Well, toward Job, but specifically toward Job's righteousness. That he is right with God. Job's friends with their small box gods, small theology, they do not have any concept of God allowing the righteous to suffer. They don't have a category where a good God allows bad things to happen to so-called good people. So they accuse Job from the beginning. They accuse Job of lying about his sin. He must be a great sinner because he is suffering so greatly. That's the only answer. Otherwise, Job, you're going to have to call God unjust. But God did not bring this suffering on Job, the loss of his wealth and his home and his children and his own health. God did not bring that on Job because of his sin 
Why did this happen to Job? You can go back to Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Go back to Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. The account of Job actually begins with the answer. So why this is happening to Job? Why is this suffering happening to Job? Job chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro from the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and turns away from evil? How did Job get into this situation? God. God chose Job. He, he pointed towards Satan, Satan toward Job. I just imagine this is the conversation God had. Hey, you've been walking around. Let me help you find someone. Think about Job, a blameless and upright man. He's turned away from evil. And so God allows Job to suffer the loss of his family, his wealth, and even his own health. And then begins the debate in Job chapter 4, verse chapters 4 through chapters 31. This can't possibly be true that Job did not deserve this. Job must be a great sinner because he's enduring great suffering. There's no concept that maybe God has some other unknown design or purpose. And now, in Job's last defense, he calls his friends, who he now refers to as enemies, to be treated as the wicked that they think Job is conversation has devolved into you're stupid, no, you're stupid, no, you're wicked, no, you're wickeder. And Job finally, in his last defense of his righteousness, condemns his enemies to the judgment of God. Is Job right? Is Job right to say, let my enemy be as the wicked? I think he is. Job, in his righteousness in the book of Job, represents and points to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The attack on Job is an attack on his righteousness, that he's right and blameless before God. It's not that Job's from Ukraine, his friends are from Russia. It's not that Job's a Cowboys fan and his friends are sore losers. Job has enemies to his righteousness. Well, it's a foreshadowing of Christ himself this is the laying the groundwork for the, the people of Israel to see Christ when He comes. And the righteousness of Christ has enemies. When Jesus came teaching on His own authority, healing, doing miracles and signs, the religious Pharisees hated Him. They hated Him. And people who thought that they were just and they were righteous by the law, they hated Jesus Meanwhile, Jesus seemed to actually count some who were the greatest sinners as righteous before God. Like prostitutes and lawyers and tax collectors. Where did Jesus' determination of righteousness, where did it ultimately lead? It ultimately led to his enemies crucifying him. The chief priests, the Pharisees, and the religious leaders of Israel wanted Jesus dead. He kept breaking all their traditions. They accused him of breaking the Sabbath day. They accused him ultimately of blasphemy. 
of saying that he was God himself. But they hated Jesus' righteousness. They hated that Jesus spoke on his own authority and counted himself as perfect, like God, above the law, above Moses, better than them even, more religious, more righteous than them. The gospel has enemies. Those who refuse to acknowledge the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those who look to Jesus and don't count Him as sinless. Don't count Him as Lord. Don't acknowledge Him as having told the truth that He is God. Some enemies will remain enemies forever. All those who forever refuse the righteousness of the cross as their righteousness will forever be enemies of Christ. Understand, all those who refuse the righteousness of the cross, Jesus' righteousness for you, will forever be enemies of Christ. If you reject Jesus' righteousness, if you deny that Jesus was God in the flesh, that He was entirely and in every way perfectly holy, He never sinned against God or man, that His death on the cross was not a result of His sin, but a result of your sin and, and my sin, then you remain, as it were, an enemy to Christ. There is only in the world, there is only acknowledging Jesus as sinless and yourself as sinful or rejecting Jesus as the sinless Son of God crucified for your sins. And there is the great divide in the world. Recently, an online movement in the name of Jesus has picked up. It's called He Gets Us. It's a $100 million advertisement campaign to try to reach people with the gospel. It's about Jesus being someone who gets the broken, who gets the outcast, who gets those who are hurt. And it's not been without controversy uh, in its beginning. One article in, in particular has gotten a lot of attention. The article has been edited now, but it originally stated this. Some, some, some believe Jesus lived a perfect life. For others, that's a stretch. Either way, as we search for themes to share, it became apparent that Jesus set a high bar for himself and others. Friends, that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. Some believe Jesus lived a perfect life. For others, that's a stretch. Either way, Jesus set a really high bar for himself. No. No, that's not the gospel. There is no gospel in Jesus having set a really high bar for himself and being a really good person. The gospel is that you cannot give any accusation against Jesus of any kind of sin, heart, mind, body, soul, and have it stick. The bar for Jesus and the bar for us is always divine holiness like God. We're, we're all, all mankind, created in the image of God, meant to be living in His righteousness and His justice toward one another in the, in the world and, and towards Him and, and holiness and love and perfection because, because we're His image. We're, we're supposed to be living out His glory on the earth. Jesus perfectly achieved it and we have not. Every member of our church 
believes that Jesus was without any sin against God. We say it like this in our statement of faith. Jesus perfectly revealed and did the will of God, taking on himself human nature with its demands and necessities and identifying himself completely with mankind, yet without sin. Friends, to deny this is to remain at enmity with God and with Jesus Christ. This is the division of people in the New Testament. Some people believed Jesus and followed him. But the ones who rejected him, they did not only choose not to follow him, they accused him of blasphemy and breaking the law. What do you think? Have you observed the Bible? Have you heard about Jesus? Maybe you're here today, you're not a Christian. You never really heard much about Jesus. Have you considered the possibility and what the implications might be if Jesus is actually without sin as a human, like, like you're human, that there's another human out there, God's own son, who had no sin, did no wrong in God's eyes. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good. And likewise, we should consider that we don't know how good Christ is until we've tried very hard to be good. Because he tried to be good. And he was good. Without sin. Well, what did the Son of God do with that righteousness? What did Jesus do towards sinners, toward his enemies? Judge? Get angry? Destroy? Breathe fire? Call down the angels as he said that he could? When Jesus died on the cross, Jesus died to save his enemies. Look within your Bibles at Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Job has enemies of his righteousness. They continue to accuse him of being sinful, though he is not. Jesus has enemies of his righteousness. I don't believe that he is without sin. Don't believe that he is the Son of God. Don't believe that he was born of a virgin, that he is God. But Jesus does something Job couldn't do. Jesus being God's Son himself. Jesus died to save his enemies. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, Paul expounding on the gospel in the first 11 chapters says, For while we were weak, still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He, it's like Job dying for his friends. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ, he didn't wait for you to get better. He didn't wait for you to enlist onto his team or his country. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, Christ's blood on the cross has justified us before God. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, what the enemies of God deserve. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Notice that for Paul, sinners and enemies are synonymous terms. While you were still sinners, while we were enemies, 
Did you know that sinning against God is hostile enemy action against God? Did you know that? Did you know the Bible calls sin against God enmity against God? It's not just that, you know what, me and God, we're on really good terms. Sometimes I just kind of mess up and I break the law. I speed a little bit. No, sin is enmity against God. That's what it is. It's treasonous. It's raising the other country's flag and saying, that's my home, those are my people. That's my military. That's my identity. That's my passport. That's what sin is. From the very beginning when Adam and Eve first shifted their eyes and ears from God and His commands to Satan and his lies and interpretation and distrusted God, they shifted kingdoms. We're done with God and His kingdom. We're going to go do our own thing over here. And they became enemies to God. James 4, verse 1 through 4, or maybe just verse 4, says it like this, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, that is with sinfulness, with wickedness, is enmity with God? It's enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Friends, put sin in its right place. It's not just kind of messing up and I'm generally good and I'm generally on God's side. No, sin is enmity with God. But what did Jesus do for me and for you? He died for his enemies. He died for the enemies, for sinners while they were still sinners and while they were still enemies against God. He didn't wait for them to sign up. He died for them while they were still enemies. Me and you, Jesus died for me and you while we were presently enemies. It would be like a Ukrainian dying for a Russian right now and they haven't even made up yet. There's a song by my favorite Christian rapper, Trip Lee, and uh, his buddy, Andy Minio. They have this line, I love it when, when we, this line, the song is 116, it comes from Romans 116. It says, But I didn't cause the Father to go and give the Christ. What love is this to send his own? To die for sin and take us home. It's got me feeling good. I forget my feelings. When have you ever heard a story about the hero dying for the villain? That's the meaning of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Jesus laid down his life, his righteous life on the cross for the forgiveness of his enemies. And he rose from the dead to conquer sin and death forever. And the way to stop being an enemy of Jesus Christ, an enemy of God the Father forever under His judgment, is to acknowledge that our sin is enmity against God. To believe in Christ. To follow Christ with our lives. Friends, just remember, if you're here today and you're a Christian, just remember that every single one of you are formerly an enemy of God. You weren't a really good person on God's team and then God saved you and you made a decision to, to you know, really believe. In our sin without Christ, every single one of us were enemies. We're all recovering enemies. Yahoo News, of all news sources, was given exclusive access to a defected Russian spy this year. The spy's name was Artem Zinchenko. 
He was first arrested in Estonia in 2017. And he was released in a prisoner trade, a spy trade, after a year. Yahoo News uh, was given four hours with him in October to record part of his autobiography. As Zinchenko told it, his decision to defect from Russia to Estonia was as much motivated by the Kremlin's brutality at home and abroad as it was that he saw Estonia's humanity toward him, an enemy agent. Something about the way he was treated by his enemies made him defect from the brutal regime. Friends, that's what it's like every time someone becomes a Christian. The whole world is at enmity with Christ and His righteousness. But Christ loves His enemies. In a supernatural humanity, He loves His enemies in a way that we don't. We used to hate God, used to be at war with God. Our, our sin used to have us at enmity with God. But when we see that Jesus laid His life down, we see that war, that, that heaven doesn't want to just go to war with us forever. It actually wants to save us. That God wants to forgive us. He wants reconciliation with His enemies. And today, if you will come to Christ and trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, not His own, that He suffered as a righteous man like Job, something Job couldn't do, Jesus did on your behalf in heaven to present His blood shed on the cross for your sin. When that happens, when you put your trust in Christ, this is how Colossians chapter 1, verse 1 through 22 describes it. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death in order to present you to Him blameless and above reproach before Him. Put you in Job's standing before God. Righteous. And that means even the most hardened arch enemies to Christ in your life may be on the verge of defecting from darkness to light. Who knows what warmth shown to an enemy Someone who's living in the brutality of the world, what it may do to motivate them to defect from darkness to light. John Calvin is a man best known for what we today called Calvinism. He was just a man like the rest of us. He was just a Christian. Consider how he remembers his own conversion. He says there were always these moments of conscience which made you feel as though you were in hell. I experienced it myself that way. I was God's arch enemy. And there was not even a semblance of obedience toward God at all. Instead, I was full of pride, full of maliciousness, arrogance, and a diabolical obstinance to resist God and to plunge myself into eternal death. But at length, I perceived as if light had broken upon me as to what style of error I had wallowed in and how much pollution and impurity I had lived in. And I made it my first business to mistake myself to your way to God, condemning my past life, and not without groaning and tears. By the light of Christ, he realized that he had been living as an enemy to God, 
That's what it means to be a Christian. Colossians 1, 13-14 says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we now have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Friends, did you know that there are millions of immigrants trying to get into the United States right now? Many who are trying to escape wicked dictatorship, or they're just desperate to flee poverty. They just want to come to American life, to America, enjoy American life, and possibly maybe become an American citizen. Uh, this week I saw a video of a UPS worker from Cuba, received his first paycheck as a UPS worker, maybe driver. And his uh, wife, I think it was, in the video, asked him to make sure to look at the taxes that had been taken out while he was excited. She said, well, look at the taxes. And he was unfazed. I prefer this to Fidel Castro. Fidel took more. Communism took more. My friend, that's what it's like under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. You might suffer in this world. You might suffer as part of the kingdom of God. You might lose things like Job lost. But communism takes more. The darkness takes more. The darkness suffering has no redeeming qualities like Jesus on the cross. Would you today consider a transfer of kingdoms? Transfer from the kingdom of darkness which seeks to entrap and enslave you into more sin and more enmity and more addiction and more confusion and more hatred towards God and men. More bitterness. More blaming other people. More debauchery. More hopelessness. More darkness. Or would you put your faith in Jesus Christ today? Be transferred from the kingdom of God, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's what baptism is at our, our church. Baptism is the formal declaration by a local church and an embassy of God's kingdom. We by baptism declare that's, that's one of us. That's been a transfer. He has a, has a new passport. Maybe you would be saved today by putting your faith in Christ and come to be baptized in weeks to come. Well, how can you live in a world full of enemies? I mean, if the whole world is divided between those who are in Christ and those who are sinfully acting as enemies, agents against God, how do you live in a world like that? How does Job live in that world? What's his kind of final answer for how to relate to enemies of the righteousness of Christ. Not enemies in the sense that we hate and despise others in our lives, and that we refer to them as people that we want to attack, but people who are enemies to Christ's righteousness. What do we do in a world that doesn't welcome, doesn't love, doesn't know Christ? For Job, he knew it meant he needed wisdom to live in that place. And what's the wisdom of Job's righteousness? Chapter 28, verse 28, that last verse that Marilyn read for us. God said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. This is part of Job's final defense. He justifies himself as right before God and those who do not acknowledge his righteousness. He refers to them as enemies who deserve what the wicked receive. What else can Job do? You can find anything you want in the world. Mankind can dig deep caves into the sides of mountains and find gold. Where do you find wisdom? The Amazon? Google? 
Can, can you buy it? Is it, in a, is it in a magazine? How, how do we know how to live, especially when our, our, quote, friends are attacking our righteousness, our faith in Christ, and they're attacking and opposed to Jesus as our righteousness on the cross? Job doesn't have anywhere else to go except fear God and keep His commandments. That is to turn away from evil. Fear God, keep His commandments. Fear God, turn away from evil. It's actually an intended couplet in wisdom literature. Fear God, keep His commands. Fear God, turn away from evil. That's it. That's really what you are allotted in life to know and do. To know passages like Psalm 93 so that you can know God and fear God and then know the rest of His Word so that you might keep His Word. Over and over and over, this is the cry of all of wisdom literature. What can you do? What can you do? Fear God, keep His commandments. It's the heart of Proverbs. It's the heart of Psalms. It's the heart of Ecclesiastes as well. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Proverbs is the book about wisdom. It's about How can I walk in an understanding way? How can I not be stupid in the world and actually know what's going on in the world and and, and not be tricked into sin? Not accidentally fall into sin, but be wise in knowing and understanding. How can I not be ignorant in the world? Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. The fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs is saying exactly what Job is saying. You want to have wisdom in the world? You want to understand the world? You want to, you want to see how the world works? It begins with fearing God. Not the other way around. Not if you get really smart and wise, then you'll come to fear God. It works the other way. Wisdom comes from fearing God and putting God in His place and you in your place. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13 through 14, also in wisdom literature. Now, the, the preacher there is basically saying through the book, I mean, it's one of the cheeriest books of the Bible, right? I mean, everything's meaningless. Sun goes up, sun goes down. Time to laugh, time to cry, time to work, time to rest, and then you die. What's the point? What's the point of making some money? What's the point of having a vineyard? What's the point of having a nice car? It's going gonna, it's gonna to rust so fast you don't even know. So what's the whole point of life? Isn't everything vanity? Here's how Ecclesiastes ends. Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14. The end of the matter when all has been heard... This is what you could do. This is your life. Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. I mean, that's it. It's the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. You, you can't control so many things. Everything's going to go away. But Ecclesiastes says, here's what matters. Here's what's not vain. Here's what's not like wind in your hands. Fear God. Keep His commandments. There's a real God who's going to take a real judgment of all your sin. Psalm 47, verse 1 and 2, is just one of many representations of the fear of the Lord in the Psalms. A life filled with worship, delight, and songs of praise to God. What does it mean to praise the Lord? Does it begin with kind of this up happiness out toward the Lord? Kind of an, an enjoyment, celebration? Of the Lord, is it a fee? Is worshiping and praising God primarily built on how I feel about God today? Over and over through the Psalms, the instructions and the reasons are like this Psalm 47, 1 to 2. Clap your hands, all peoples. 
Shout to joy. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord the Most High is to be feared. A great King over all the earth. The fear of the Lord is the foundation of our worship to Him. If you find yourself not wanting to sing to God, hardened toward God, resistant toward praising Him, go all the way down deep in your heart and see if there isn't a lack of fear of Him. Reverence to who He is, His majesty, His wonder, and His power, that He's the King. It's all through the Psalms. Now it's in Job's final defense of his righteousness. When it looks to his friends and to himself, even Job, the world is dominated by chaos and evil. When your suffering seems to be disproportionate to your righteousness, when the enemies of your righteousness, that is of Christ in our case, when they continue to accuse you, when you don't know why God is letting bad things happen to you, what can you do? You see how Job fits in wisdom literature? Proverbs is saying, how can you have understanding in the world? How can you know the world? Know the, the world and live in it? Fear God. Ecclesiastes, everything is meaningless. What actually matters in the world? Fear God, keep His commandments. Psalms, how do we, how do we actually come to worship God and, and love Him with our lives and in our songs? Fear the Lord. And what's the answer like in Job when the world seems chaotic, when, when, I don't seem, when I seem to do good things and I get bad things back, and the whole world seems morally out of order? What do you do? What do you do? Fear God. Turn from evil. You keep doing that. You fear God, you keep His commandments. That's it. That's what the Lord has given us to do. And think about what Job is doing in Job chapter 28. Surely there's a mine for silver, verse 1, and a place that you can go find gold and refine it. Iron's taken out of the earth, copper smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out the farthest limit. The end to darkness means we take light deep down in the tunnels where we go, in the ore and the gloom and the deep darkness. I mean, we, we go deep down on the earth and, and find some cool stuff. Diamonds and sapphires and, and gold. The birds can't know anything about it, verse 7. The, the proud beasts have never been down there to find those things, but we did. Man did. Verse 9, man put his hand to the rock or turns the mountains, gets channels into the rocks. We see all the precious things down. We can block up streams. I mean, I guess beavers do that, but... Dams up the stream so they don't trickle. The thing that's hidden he brings out to light. But, where's wisdom? Where do you go get it? Where do you get wisdom? Man doesn't even know it's worth, verse 13. It's not found in the land of the living. Not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it's not in me. I mean, it's not like a Dr. Seuss book. Where's wisdom? It's not in me. And the sea says, not with me. I'm not your mother. And Job is getting it. In order to understand God's wisdom, you have to get over, like Ecclesiastes said, you have to get over the sun. You have to get beyond our world. Ecclesiastes 1.14 says, I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. When you're looking under the sun, everything's meaningless. But if you get past the sun... Or in our case today, with our technology, if you get past that 
400 million light year light away that we just discovered for the first time. If you get past that, you find God. And you find the meaning of the world. You find how to make it through the chaos and evil and disorder in our world by finding there in God the command. Fear Him, keep His commandments. You can't buy wisdom. You can't buy, I know some of you have tried. You bought the books. You read the blogs. You, you listen to the podcast. But it doesn't work like that. You can't buy it. You can't trade for it. I mean, coral, crystal, pearls. Wisdom is worth more than pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia, which apparently is really valuable. You can't get it like that. You can't go buy it at, on, on Amazon. There's no value to it. <laughs> you, you can't trade God for it. In fact, he says in verse 21, it's hidden from the eyes of the, the living, concealed from the birds of the air. Even Abaddon and death themselves, here, here's the best that they can say about wisdom. Death itself. Here's the best they can say. We heard some rumors about it. Death seems to bring everything to clarity, does it not? What matters today? What matters today? Well, if you know you're going to die tomorrow, do things matter differently today? You know you're going to die in 20 years. Do things matter differently today? Oh, they do. They do. That's why Ecclesiastes tells us, go do some thinking in the cemetery. See if life doesn't get a little clearer for you. But even death, Job says, just here's a rumor of it. Just heard about it, you know. Scroll, I scrolled through on Facebook and saw some things. Books are wonderful, but you can't buy wisdom. You can't buy knowledge of how to live your life. Books are great. Podcasts are great. There's no price you can pay to understand how to live in the midst of suffering, seemingly chaotic, and disorderly world. So where do you go to get wisdom? Fearing God. Keep His commandments. Verse 23. God understands the way to it. God knows. God knows how to get there. Isn't that great? I mean, isn't that good news? How can you get to wisdom? God knows the way. He knows. He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When He gave to the wind its weight and pointed to the waters by measure. When He made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning to the thunder... Then he saw it and declared it. He established it. He searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. And turn away from evil is understanding. God has put the world in order. And he, and he alone, is to be feared to be righteous before himself and man. It means no matter your suffering seems unjust. No matter how much you are accused of being unrighteous, when you are actually righteous, no matter whether you are suffering and you don't know why. No matter whether it looks like chaos and evil are ruling the world around you. And it makes no sense. Here's the way to wisdom. Get God at the center of your reality. Make sure you recognize God as the center, the creator, the founder, the owner, the sustainer, the ruler, the reigner, the majestic throne Governing God. You look at God. And you fear Him. And you keep His commandments. That's it. 
It's wonderfully freeing, isn't it? It's wonderfully freeing to know that you got one to please, God. And you have one revelation, you have one speaker, one sovereign in your life. Not a thousand, not everyone in your house, not your president, not your political party chair. One, fear God, keep His commandments. Everything else comes out from that. Take the prophets, for example. What do they see when Israel, when Israel's life just looks unfair? And they're surprised and they're shocked. Now, in their case, their sin had led them into exile. But what does God give the people of Israel when they are being taken out of their homes and suffering in exile? Isaiah sees the Lord on a, on a throne with seraphim about him. Ezekiel sees the Lord on the throne with wheels covering their eyes and lightning around the seraphim. Daniel sees the Ancient of Days seated on the throne with 10,000 times 10,000 angels surrounding him. When God's people are in the midst of what looks like to them chaos and disorder, whether it is discipline or they don't know God's designs, God shows them Himself to lead them to fear Him and just keep His commandments. And let God do what He will. When you are frightened by enemies or chaos, the way forward is to fear the Lord. Get that? When you're frightened by enemies or what in the world feels like chaos, the way forward is to fear the Lord. Our, ironically, our problem when we are confused and afraid and unsure what to do, the answer is that we're too afraid of the wrong things and not afraid enough of the right things of God. We're not afraid enough of the Lord. I've not recognized His majesty, His power, His sovereignty, His righteousness and His judgment towards sin, which would drive us towards Christ. Fear God. Keep His commandments. You know what doesn't make sense to you? March around Jericho seven times. Only pick up enough manna for today. Make your army smaller. Go ahead and build a house while you're in Babylon. Or what Jesus commanded, pray for your enemies. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. A good practice this afternoon, a continuation of this sermon might be, just go to the New Testament and find the second half of Romans 12 through 16. The second half of Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Second half of Colossians and just read through and see what has God commanded me to do? I've got a lot of striving in the world. I may have a lot of enemies in the world. I may have a lot of chaos in the world. Let it be. Let it be. God, what do you want me to do? Fear God and keep His commandments. And then when we gather as a church, when we come into this place and we come and sing, when you go from your Tuesdays or your Thursdays into your life groups, and we are together claiming and clinging to the righteousness of Jesus Christ that saves us as enemies from God. It's like those scenes in so many movies, whether it's The Saint with Val Kilmer or any you could imagine, where you've got someone with a passport and they're in a foreign country 
and someone's spying on them, someone's after them, some evil power is after them to get them. What do they do? They run to the embassy. And on the way, they shout, I'm an American, I'm an American, I'm an American. And then you show your passport and you get in. And you're safe. Friends, every time we gather, every time we're together in fellowship, every time we're singing together, all of our reading together, our discipleship together, it's a celebration that we're not enemies anymore. Not with each other, not with God. And it's also hopefulness that some of the enemies who are still enemies of God and their sin, like us, might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. Because that's where we all were once, right? That's where we were. We were enemies and hostile in mind, alien to God and to his people. The world's going to be unfair. As Christians who are trusting in the righteousness of Christ, world filled with those who are sinning against God, disbelieving, what can you do? Fear the Lord. Keep his commandments. Heavenly Father, we take just a moment to reflect on our lives this week and where this passage lands in our hearts and how we might be convicted to repent of enmity or um, disbelief, weakness, and instead turn our hearts to believe you and your majesty and your love for your enemies and the wisdom of what we are to do this week, which is fear you, keep your commandments. Father, thank you for your word this day and that it has providentially landed uh, for us today. Uh, help us to take it to heart and enjoy it. Uh, help it to cause us to fear you as God. And so keep your commandments, uh, loving your holiness, trusting our righteousness in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Amen.